All right, second service. Here we go. Let's do this. Um, before we dive in, a couple quick announcements. Um, Grace Partnership Conference is a little over a week away. There's still time for you to register. I think there's about 26, somewhere between 26 and 30 of us registered to go. We'd love to have you. Also, there's two opportunities for the conference for hospitality. So one is um, Jaime from uh, a missionary in Dominican Republic uh, is staying at Christ Central Church, and he will need a ride back and forth. So if anybody is commuting back and forth, please see me. We need to get him a ride. And then secondly, Eduardo Ferguson. Eduardo will be our guest speaker in two Sundays from now. Um, he uh, will be at the conference as well. And after the conference on Saturday, I'll be bringing him back to Titusville. And if you, any of you would be willing to host him uh, Saturday afternoon, feed him that night, give him a nice warm bed, and bring him to church Sunday morning, all right? Because he's our guest speaker. It, you, you're important. You're important. <laughs> So um, if, if you would be open to either of those hospitality needs, please see me and uh, would love to serve these, these guys. Uh, the title this morning is The Ordinary Messenger and the Extraordinary Message. So over the next four weeks, as Alex announced, we will be walking through, this is our mission series. So if you're new to Trinity, every year we spend anywhere from two to four weeks, the start of the year, on mission and this year, we will be covering four summary statements in the book of Acts. And so there's more than four, but we're going to spend four weeks here on these different summary statements, like the one that Alex just read for us in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's a summary statement. You hear things like that throughout the book of Acts. Everything about the messenger that we're going to hear this morning is ordinary. And everything about the message that he brings is extraordinary. This ought to encourage us because we are very ordinary messengers. We're very ordinary communicators. But as ordinary communicators, we bring an extraordinary message. We are, we are quite ordinary, meaning, meaning we... We recognize our weakness. We recognize our anxiety. We, we go into gospel conversations with knees knocking. We're aware that we're not extraordinary messengers. I trust we're aware of that. But you, church, carry an extraordinary message. And we're going to see that here in the text in a few moments. We live in a world that missions. Corporate America is all about mission, right? Any corporation in America has a mission statement. We mission in endless ways. We mission our hobbies. We mission um, our favorite product. We mission on social media. We mission the steaks you grilled last night. We mission our superior, our supposed superior insights. We mission all the time. We live in a world that missions. But the church goes out on mission with a message that actually has gospel power. Power to save. So with that, let's pray and we'll dive in. 
God, would you come and give us your grace and power this morning, Lord, as we preach through this text. God, move upon our hearts. And where appropriate, where needed, cut us to the heart. I ask you in Jesus' name, amen. Number one is the setup. Setup just being, how do we get to chapter two? What's been going on? What, what happened in chapter one that Peter now gets up and preaches this message that we're going to be looking at? And so real quickly, going back to chapter one, verse one, Luke is the author of Acts. And he says this, in the first book, O Theophilus, the first book being the gospel of Luke. All right, so Luke wrote Luke and he wrote Acts. And so he's saying in the first book, in that gospel, the gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Verse two, until the day he was taken up. And after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So he's saying in the first book, in the gospel of Luke, I dealt with what Jesus began to do all the way up to that point of his ascension. And we can read about that. Read the end of Luke. It's going to talk about the ascension of Christ. And then you turn to Acts and he continues the narrative, if you will. What happened after Jesus ascended? right? That's what brings us to chapter two. What happened after Jesus ended? And that's what Luke does. It's like, it's like a movie. Here's the first movie. And then the second movie, he overlaps the material just a little bit. He covers the ascension again here in Acts. And so in verse four, he gives them instructions. You're to wait for the promised Holy Spirit in prayer. In verse eight, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then in verses nine through 11, Christ ascends. And so that's the overlap. We jump into chapter two, verse one. They're all filled with the spirit and they begin to speak in other tongues. And then in verse 12, some are perplexed and amazed, we're told. And then in verse 13, others are mocking them, saying that the people are drunk. That's the setup. When Peter, if you will, imagine with me, opens the Bible, adjusts the microphone and begins to preach to this crowd. Think about this. This is the first sermon to be delivered after Christ has ascended and the Spirit has descended. Now, this is the first sermon in the early church. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning, which brings us to the ordinary extraordinary messenger. I'll explain why I'm adding the word extraordinary now to the messenger, but we'll get to that in a second. Look with me, chapter two, verse 14 and 15. But Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words for these people are not drunk as you suppose since it's only the third hour of the day. Wow, Peter just going super practical for us. They're not drunk like you suppose. He's just saying something else is going on here. You guys are missing what you think it is. You must be drunk to think that they're drunk. That's not what's going on. And here's what I love. I love it when it says, and give ear to my words, or we could say it like this. Hey guys, Listen up. Trinity, there comes a time when in every believer, 
where we must speak and have this listen up moment. And I want you to think about people, friends or family, people that you're in relational um, network with. I want you to consider, are you to have a listen up moment with them? Where you're literally saying, look, maybe you're not using the words listen up, but you're saying, I need to get something off my chest. Give me, give me five minutes and just hear me out. Listen up. Before we get to the content of the message, what Peter communicated, I want us to consider the messenger. As I said, he's nothing extraordinary. He's very ordinary. The point of Acts chapter 2 is not Peter. (laughs) The point of Acts chapter 2 is not the messenger. The point is not the presence of Peter. The point in Acts chapter 2 is the presence of God. God, by his Holy Spirit, has descended. Whereas Christ came and lived among them, he then ascended and he told his disciples, it's good for me to go because I will send you another helper. And why it's good for me to go is because I lived among you, but I'm gonna send my spirit to live in you. The point isn't, Glory be to Peter. The point is glory be to God. The point isn't the presence of Peter. The point is the presence of God has come. God is the glory in chapter two of Acts. And at the same time, talk out of the other side of my mouth, the messenger is glorious. Okay, not in a Peter, you're glorious sort of way, but wait, what? Peter? What happened to Peter? Or we could say, what got into Peter? Or better, who got into Peter? The Spirit of God. And that's glorious. It's glorious when a sinner, saved by grace, see, you're not a glorious messenger, and now I'm going to convince you you are. You're a glorious messenger because you have been saved by grace and you've been given a glorious message to communicate. It's why Paul will say to the Corinthians, you're ambassadors of Christ. Wait, what, huh? That's glorious. That is a glorious messenger. But again, not in look at the messenger sort of way. Rather, wait, what? Look at the messenger sort of way. Is that Peter? Is that the Christ denier? Is that the Christ confronter? Is that the guy who chopped off the soldier's ear in the garden? Is that the guy who cowered before the servant girl after Christ was crucified and denied Christ? Is that the smelly fisherman? What's gotten into him? Who's gotten into him? What I'm saying to you is that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you and I are that messenger. Ordinary, knee-knocking communicators, and yet extraordinary in that God would entrust his gospel message in us. Nothing extraordinary about Peter 
Nothing amazing about him or you or me. Everything amazing about the Holy Spirit in him, in you, in me. Be encouraged, church. Average communicators, weak communicators, cowering, Peter-like communicators, now filled with the Spirit and given boldness to speak. What will he say? There comes a time, church, a time to speak. What will you say? He doesn't simply share his story. He shares Christ's story, which brings us to the extraordinary message. Look at with me, verse number 17. And in the last days, well, 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. And in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That first message, what will he say? Christ has ascended, the spirit has come and has now filled him. What will he say? The first sermon delivered to that early church. He opens his Bible, if you will. He takes them to Joel. The first sermon on that day was Bible-centric. And I want to ask us, what is the content of the sermon of your life? Does it point to you or does it point to the Bible? Is it filled with your opinions our subjective ideas that kind of come and go? Or is it filled with the objective truth and the authority of the word of God? Is it a Bible message that you preach? You see, Peter knows where the power is and it's not in him in and of himself. It's in the word. And so let's go to Joel is what he's saying to the people that day. Basically, Peter is telling them, look, this is what God's word said would be. In one sense, we should all be shocked and surprised if we're living there in that day. In another sense, he's saying, nothing surprising going on here. We've known that this day is coming ever since the prophet Joel. What's happening? Well, we were told it would happen, guys. And I want us to know that when he goes Bible-centric, that's the strategy for the church. We, the church, in the message of our life, as we preach the word, and as we preach the word at this pulpit, listen, preach the word. Don't preach your, simply you. And let's not look to gimmicks. And let's not look to, to, to trendy things. We don't need trendy things. The power is not in trendy things. The power is in the word. And so we preach the word. Can I appeal to you? Don't demand that your pastors be funny 
or don't demand that we get all the great illustrations out. Don't demand that we be entertaining. Demand, demand that we preach the word. And if we as a team stop preaching the word, you have our team's permission. Go find a church that does. And I'll follow you out the door. The result was that people were saved. And when they were saved, it says they were added to a number. Meaning this, they weren't simply saved. Now I'm an individual Christian living in Corinth or Thessalonica or Colossae or wherever. They were saved and they were added to a people, a church, a body. It wasn't, I got saved and now I'm just a Christian. It's me and Jesus living in Corinth. No. It was, I got saved and it's me and Jesus and the people, the body, the bride of Christ. The point of Joel's message, going back to verses 17 and 18, is that there's coming a day when I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, which is Peter just simply saying, guys, look around you, that day is here. That's what's going on. They're not drunk as you suppose. Joel is happening. In verses 19 and 21, I wanna read it again. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is Joel, all right? He's quoting Joel. That is Peter. That is us today is to say, listen, The gospel message includes the message of warning. That's what he's communicating there. And I want to appeal to us. Listen, don't dull the blade of the gospel. We need to bring, we need to preach, all of us in our individual lives, we need to preach the entire gospel, which includes warning. This is warning of coming judgment judgment for sin. This is the wrath of God. This is sobering stuff, church. This is to say there is a day of judgment. All humanity will face judgment one of two ways. One, you will face judgment as a sinner rejecting Jesus Christ. Judgment will come. This is the wrath of God. This is, this is the appeal to the gospel message to loved ones. Listen, this is a sense of urgency that we need in our gospel message. Don't dullen the blade of the gospel. Don't soften it down because, oh, we just don't, uh, don't really want to go there. But no, we need to go there because one of two ways judgment comes. One comes, the wages of sin is death. I reject Christ. It is death, eternal death, hell to me. Or, I trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, wherein judgment still comes. It doesn't come to me though. It comes to Christ where he stands in my place and he receives the judgment my sins deserve.
my concern is that we soften the gospel message and we skip the parts of judgment. And when we do, we deceive people. We end up helping them just become a better you. We help them become better moralists. You just be more kind, perhaps, more loving, be more neighborly or whatever it might be. But we don't save them to a big savior when we do that. You want to grow in your eyes how glorious the savior is. You want a big savior? Meditate on the judgment your sins deserved. And the world needs to hear that message through you, through me. The message that we preach must include warning. That sounds quite a bit fire and brimstone. And it is. And we need to be reminded. For the believer, that's a praise be to God moment. My Savior saved me from an eternal judgment in hell. For the unbeliever, our prayer is, it'd be sobering. Christ didn't come to save you into a more moral life. He came to redeem you from the pit of hell itself. A salvation that knows nothing of the warning is a salvation to a very small savior. The reason Christ came and died on the cross is because we are great sinners headed for hell. And Christ died to redeem us from our sin. Peter is Bible-centric. That's the first thing we want to note about his extraordinary message. He takes him straight to the Bible. The second thing we want to note is that he's gospel-centric. Peter's message points to Christ. Let's read about it. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me for he is at my right hand and that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. 
For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What is Peter doing? Not only is he saying, open your Bibles to the book of Joel. He's also going to take them to the Psalms. And he's also, what? In going to Joel and Psalms, he's going to take them to Jesus. He is gospel-centric, Jesus-centric. Peter's message points to Christ. Why? Well, because he's spirit-filled. The spirit, the spirit's role is to point to Christ. That's what the spirit does. Okay, so when he points to Christ, well, that's just, that's the first spirit-filled message to the early church. The spirit comes, points to Christ. The spirit didn't come to, to steal the show, if you will. The spirit came on that day of Pentecost to say, look, Christ. I like the way R.C. Sproul says it. He says, if you are a spirit-filled church that does not point to Christ, you are not a spirit-filled church. The Spirit was sent to empower the church that the church would what? Proclaim Christ. Even the Spirit doesn't show up to say, hey, look at me, shows up to say Christ. So let's ask ourselves the question, what do we preach? Who or what do we point to when we preach? Are you Bible-centered Are you Christ-centered, gospel-centered? He says in verse 22 that God attested by sending Christ and his his miracles attested to Christ, meaning it attests that this is the son of God, that this is the Messiah, that this is the one that not only Joel and David, but all the other writers of the Old Testament, this attests to this is that man. Christ has come, the son of God, the Messiah has come the one we've been waiting for. And he's been performing miracles, Peter is saying to the crowd, right in front of your eyes. Peter's appealing to what they saw to say something of the man that they have crucified. And in verse 23, one of my favorite verses in the book of Acts, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. All right? Throughout scripture, and this is one of the best places to turn to, you're gonna see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man linked. Here it is. This Jesus delivered up according, according to what? To the definite plan and foreknowledge of who? God, you crucified. He is saying, God is sovereign. God is sovereign over the death of Christ. Listen, if God is not sovereign over the death of Christ, then either Christ died randomly, just a random event, just kind of just, just so happened, or it was just out of Christ's hands. There's nothing he can do to stop it. Or... God is sovereign. And according to the definite foreknowledge of God, it was determined. 
that Christ would die on the cross. Praise be to God, it wasn't random. Praise be to God, he determined that that would take place. What does it mean that God is sovereign? It means he determines. If God did not determine the cross of Christ, then again, it was random or worse. It was out of his hands. That's not how he speaks of himself and his death in John 10. He says this, for this reason, Jesus speaking, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. If the cross was not determined by God, then God is not sovereign. And if God is not sovereign, then God is not God. But that does not mean man is a robot. That does not mean Man has no responsibility because he says, well, the comma has been added in translation, you crucified. Man has responsibility. God does his will, his sovereign will, through real decisions and real actions by real people. Welcome to the mystery of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Verse 24 further goes on, says, and God raised him up. Again, God is sovereign. He raised him up. If you were in that crowd as a believer that day, this would have been your moment to amen the preacher, to amen that message. God raised him up. And the crowd responded in amen. Verse 25 through 28 is a Psalm of David. David is rejoicing in the promise of the Holy One of Israel. And one of the things he does, which is really quite genius, verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, right? The great David, that guy that we look to, the king, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. You know what he's saying there? We can go, we can attest to some things. Let's go attest to the great King David. He's in his tomb. He's still there. That's what he's saying. We can go to the tomb of different great men, if you will, throughout history. Muhammad, he's still there. The bones are there. We can confirm he's there. We can go to you can go to the tomb of, Bahamut, of Buddha or the tomb of Confucius or even godly David's tomb. We can go to David's tomb and his bones are there. We can attest to this. But verses 30 and 31, we can go to the tomb of Christ, which attests to something different. He's alive. He's alive, meaning He is the Messiah. This is God whom you crucified. But he rose. David, not so much. (laughs) Someone better than David has come. Christ has come and he is risen. Verses 34 and 35. Let's read them again. 
For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he, says, he, he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. I circled the word both and underlined the words Lord and Christ. He's both. He's both Lord and Christ. Christ. Let there be no question about it. And here, Peter is making a political statement by quoting Psalm 110. Christ is above all others, all the rulers, all the emperors, all the lords. In Roman culture, it was required that you were to to give allegiance to the Caesar. And so you would, as a citizen of Rome, you would say, Caesar is Lord. And then the church, the redeemed people of God came to be and they would no longer say Caesar is Lord. That's what Peter's getting after here. There's, there's a new Lord in town and they would walk and they would say, Jesus is Lord. He is the Lord. Peter is saying from Psalm 110 that God took his Messiah and elevated him to the right hand of God where he now sits in cosmic authority. He is the Lord. He is the Lord of lords. Peter is saying, you crucified this man, Jesus. He's the Savior. He's the Christ and Lord. It's important because people today want to say, is he Savior or Lord? They're fine with Savior to some degree. I want to I, I accept him as my Savior because, well, I don't want to go to hell. So I need a Savior. And so let me take care of things. Let me, let me have this moment where I pray a sinner's prayer. I say the right thing and I make him my Savior, but I reject him as my Lord. It's a thing. If your view of Jesus is that you need some forgiveness, and I tell you what, Jesus, thank you for your forgiveness, and I'll let you know when I need you. When things get really desperate, I'll call on you, Jesus, but I'm just good with you. Just stay in your lane. You can be the Savior, but I'll be the Lord. Christ didn't come to be a nice little Jesus who simply offers forgiveness for someone who will say the right words in a prayer. Christ came, most definitely, to be the Savior and the Lord, both. He is Savior He is Lord. He didn't come to be a convenient savior. He came to be someone who we would throw ourselves before and submit to his lordship. That's what repentance is, is I repent of my lordship of my life. All the things I want, I desire, I lust for, I repent of these things because you are now my savior and Lord, I 
throw myself at your feet. You are Lord. Some would say, no, I'll pass on that aspect of Jesus and I'll just stick with the Savior. Let me be further clear. If Jesus is not Lord, then you are not living for Jesus. You are living for yourself. And your deception is concerning, gravely concerning. If you are not making Jesus your Lord, let's be further clear. You are not a Christian. So let's stop with the deception that exists in our day, that I can accept him as savior. So I have a little bit of fire insurance for eternity, but I will reject him as Lord because that just gets a little too radical for my style. Some of the people on that day got it. And that's why there is a extraordinary response. Let's look, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's an extraordinary response. <laughs> I want to point out to you again that man understands he has a responsibility before a sovereign God. When they're asking, what must we do? That speaks to that responsibility of man. Well, we need to repent. We need to trust in Jesus Christ. We need to be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Repent means turn from, well, turn from your, yourself as being Lord and turn to the Lord. Turn from our sin, turn from our lusts, our desires, all the things that makes me, I do what I wanna do and makes me Lord and turn to the Lord. Submit yourself to his book, the word of God. and be baptized. I want to encourage us. If you've not been baptized, be baptized. Why? Well, for one, because we're told to. <laughs> it's, it's kind of that simple, but let's go further than that. Be baptized. Don't minimize this. Why? Because your baptism is a, well, it's a public proclamation that I identify myself. I am with this man. He is my savior and my Lord. I am in Christ. And to all those who are around your baptism, I'm with them. I'm one of you. I join with you in identifying myself in Christ 
that you also being in Christ, we are a part of the family of God. We are brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so this is a, this is a moment where you're identifying publicly with your Savior and Lord and with other brothers and sisters in the Lord. Don't minimize that. And then in verse 41, 3,000 people were added. Why did that happen? Because the Spirit came to an ordinary messenger who delivered, preached a Spirit-filled, extraordinary message. Let's pray. God, would you help us? A lot of different categories this morning. Lord, where appropriate, would you cut us to the heart? Father, for some, that would be unbelievers. For some, that would be, I thought I was a believer. And for others, that would be believers. Lord, cut us to the heart. Lord, call people to salvation. And for those who are saved, call us. Lord, to proclaim this extraordinary message. Help us to do so, not in the confidence of our abilities, for that will have us cowering in fear, but in the confidence that we have been filled by an extraordinary God. You have sent your spirit to live in us so that we might now proclaim Christ to a lost and dying world. God, would you help us? In Jesus' name, amen. Before we close, um, just a bit of an announcement, uh, and a, it's an appeal for prayer. So we're obviously ending quite a bit different than we usually do on Sunday mornings, but um, I never quite know how to make these transitions because they're just awkward, so I'm just gonna bleh, spit it out and say it and roll with it. But the appeal is for you to pray for Alex and Melinda, and the Bowman family. Uh, Alex has for quite some time, quite a few years now, has had a burden to lead a church, to be a lead pastor, leading a church. That might be, um, as, we, as we bring to you, please pray about this and please pray for them as a family. That could be a church plant from Trinity. That could be already a church in existence who's maybe right now as we speak announcing to the church, please pray for a man, for a couple, for a family. Could be that. Um, let me just pause and say, if you have any sort of desire to be on a church plant, come talk to them, all right? We'd love to be having those conversations, all right? That's not, that's not sign me up. That's just, I'm, I'm interested, can we talk about that? Can we explore that as a family as well? We'd love to be having those conversations also. Build a couple bridges, all right? There's no issues here. This is not, Alex, I want to pastor somewhere else so I can get away from Trinity. I know, it's silly and you, you know, we have to chuckle, but unfortunately those things have to be said because people walk out and go, what was really happening there? Um, here's what's really happening. We love working together, <laughs> okay? And, and uh, well, to the men who were in the meeting yesterday, discipleship, yes. abiding in Jesus, yes. means you get cut. Yes. That's John 15. Yes. 
Abiding in Jesus means there's a pruning. And so, yeah, you heard some of those comments yesterday. Now here's the the full disclosure (laughs) to some of those thoughts. Um, Let me say this. We're just exploring this. We're not saying this is going to (laughs) happen. We're exploring it. And really, um, quite a few months ago, somewhere towards the tail end of 2020, as Alex and I were meeting and talking about the four-week mission series, we just started to talk. You know what? During the mission series, it'd be a great time to bring this to the church and just say, church, will you pray? Will you pray? And please don't pray selfishly. (laughs) Lord, don't let them go. (laughs) I know that's a temptation, but can we pray? Would you commit yourself to genuinely pray, Lord, do you have something for them? And if so, would you make that clear, not only to them, but to the elder team and for us as a church, that if that day was to come, we'd be able to rally behind them and say, you know what? We believe we've heard from the Lord on this. So to be clear, we're not saying Alex and Melinda are leaving. (laughs) We are saying, would you join with us? Would you seek the Lord with us and with them? And if I could say our human request, I don't know how else to do this, but just tell you, these are the conversations that we have. Like humanly speaking, we're just asking the Lord, would you mind letting us know this year? Here's why. It's difficult for that to linger. You can imagine as you kind of just try to process that, you continue to pray about that. This has been something that's been going on for three years. That as you continue to pr- process, think through, consider, I wonder if it's this, I wonder if it's that. We're not giving God the timeline. He can, right. he can change that in 2022. But we are asking, Lord, would you be so kind to either let it be clear, is it a church plant? Is it leading a church that's already existent or is it he's going to be staying here and we can kind of put this to bed and, you know, Alex would say, put my hand to the plow. I want to thank you, church, because I know in bringing an announcement like that, I just know you're going to pray. And so we're going to hear from the Lord. So thank you in advance for praying and Let's pray. Father God, we lift up the Bowman family, Lord, and thank you, God, for them. What a gift they are to this church. Thank you for how you have called them and just thinking over the years, Lord, how you called Alex out of teaching to be here and simply at first to be here. And then you called him to pastoral ministry and perhaps, Lord, you would have another move for them. And we just ask you for your will to be done, Lord. Our hands are open. Lord, we desire to see more mission take place. We want to see more gospel-centered, Bible-centered churches take place. And perhaps you have something. Or if not, Lord, hands to the plow. Here we go. Lord God, we simply want to honor you and be faithful to all that you call us to. Lord, there might be people in the church who've been thinking, I'm interested in church planning. Lord, stir our hearts. Lord, perhaps there's a day where a chunk of people from this church go 
and plant another church. Lord, where we send people and we send finances and we say, go for the sake of the gospel and the pruning begins again. Lord, and we will rejoice. Lord, whatever it is that you have, we will trust you. And we trust that as we walk this out, we will do so in a way that honors you and glorifies you. In your great name, we pray.